when our Lord Jesus walked upon this earth and he ascended that hill on one side of the Sea of Galilee and all of the multitudes gathered around him, his disciples being closest, he began the most famous sermon in all of human history with a series of eight blessings, eight, we call them Beatitudes, that um, some have described as the be happy attitudes, the, the kinds of attitudes and obedience that the Lord is looking for where He can bless the lives of disciples. These eight Beatitudes end with the eighth one, which is blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're told there that we're not going to be short-shifted if we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We get a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that will come to earth in full visible power. Actually, that eighth beatitude is the one that gets the most amount of space, for he gives an explanation there. He says, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. It takes faith to see a reward in heaven that you can't see. But he reassured us that if you are the kind of person that is being attacked or marginalized or made fun of and ridiculed due to your Christian faith, you have a great reward. Now, I'm going to take Jesus at his word. I'm going to say he's right and that I won't be disappointed with that reward. The hard part is to bring all of that into our minds when the persecution's happening, right? That's why we're learning from the book of Acts here and going through it and seeing how God works through persecution and the good that he does. We've reached no further than chapter 4, very early in the church's history. We've encountered the first persecution against believers, a reality that Jesus said you are to expect if you are one of my followers. Persecution is a reality for Christians. It comes in different forms. It's more subtle in our country, but it's here. We ask ourselves, what is the good that can come from persecution so we can face it with the right heart attitudes and faith? Well, Jesus promised if you're persecuted for his name, your reward in heaven is great. But there's more. There's even blessings that we can see for the church down here on earth. And we return to Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 22, and this is part 2 in our series of messages from there. If you look and follow along with me, Luke wrote, as they were speaking to the people, that's in the temple, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. It's quite an event, this whole healing of the lame man and everything that came from it. That's what we're dealing with is the fallout from a healing, from a miracle done um, right there in Jerusalem in the temple by Peter and John. As we mentioned up till now, the church has had favor with all of the people, and they probably still do at this point in time, but not favor with the leaders of the people. And so this is their first confrontation with the Jewish leadership, by no means their last. Indeed, the actions of this council, the Sanhedrin, controls the entire narrative. If you read down through it, you see it's their actions that set the paragraphs of the story. Yet behind their actions, we trust and know and understand There's a providential, sovereign God that is allowing and directing this first persecution against the church, which even here is not full-blown. It just is beginning. It's just more of an inconvenience, a little embarrassment maybe that they're trying to bring on the church. We perceive God's hand, a wise hand, a providential hand, a hand that no one can stay, using all of this to bring out a wondrous testimony to His own Son, and that by it expanding the church itself. From the text, we learn that central lesson. God allows persecution to come to the church so that He may empower His people to give a testimony to Jesus Christ, that He might allow His people to glorify Jesus. Here we see that God is glorified despite the hostile actions of the leaders. There are three hostile actions we're looking at. The first one we talked about last time was the arrest. That was in verses 1 through 4. Remember, the two were arrested in the temple. There was a full entourage of priestly authorities that came. They they didn't just send a couple of police, you know, a couple of temple cops to them. They brought a full entourage to arrest them. This showed them that what Peter and John were doing to spread this name bothered them immensely. 
They were strongly annoyed, particularly by two things. They were teaching the people, which in their minds they had absolutely no right to do, and secondly, because they were proclaiming in Jesus this resurrection from the dead. So they put him in jail, which is not really a punishment. Um, You could see later they gave no, there was no reason to punish them. It was more of a holding place to make sure that they could have their hearing for the next day. Um, They wanted a formal hearing. In verse 4, Luke notes that all of this has resulted in the growth of the church, the proclamation there and the fact that the people probably had some awareness that the leaders were against this gave them even more intrigue as to what this message was about. And then this is a bold testimony in the temple, and it it tells us in verse 4, there were many who heard the message and many believed. The leaders are trying to find a way to put a cap on all of this, but the Holy Spirit is producing many who believe. It even gives the number about 5,000. We mentioned how Luke has been tracking the growth, the numerical growth of the church in Jerusalem from 120 disciples before the church was born in Acts 1.15 to 3,000. These are probably rounded numbers. In Acts 2.41, now it's grown uh, to act, in Acts 4.4 to about 5,000. It's going to continue to grow. We, we get the next note in Acts 21.20 to what Luke just describes as many thousand. The first church was a mega church. It was a mega church by the plan of God. God wanted to use it to affect an entire region. And we learned and applied that it is sometimes God's will to produce large churches so they will have an impact on their surrounding region. For those who talk about church growth as if it is a bad thing, please understand that here the Holy Spirit is testifying over and over again that this is the will of God, that He grows His church. In fact, God even allows persecution to hit a large and happy and productive church Not so much that it will continue to grow larger, but that its impact will grow larger and it will spread into other geographical regions. We'll see as we go through Acts that that's exactly what happens with the increased persecution here that starts in these early chapters. Today we come to the second hostile action of these leaders against the church, and that is their interrogation, the interrogation in verses 5 through 12 verses 5 through 12. Starting and reading from verse 5 again, it says, On the next day, their rulers and their elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? I try to envision what their face looked like. They tilted their head, and they looked down their noses at them, and by what power do you do this? What name allows you to do this? I don't know how they said it, but that's kind of how I envision it. This is a formal examination of Jews who dared to teach other Jews in the temple. That little note in verse 7 that they placed them in the center accords well with what we know about the practice of the ruling body of the Jews outside of the New Testament. They typically would sit in a semicircle and they would put the accused or the one that they were trying to examine right there in the center and there would be any witnesses that would be needed standing by somewhere. And then they would examine him. This is what you said. What did you mean by that? We heard that this is what you did. We have witnesses that prove that. How do you speak for yourself? And a lawyer was not usually brought to defend them. They had to defend themselves. They had to, the, the counsel had to hear from their own mouths what it was that they were doing. 
It was a way of getting direct testimony so they could then uh, give a ruling as to what they wanted to do. The fact that this happened the very next day and the apostles were only in jail for the night indicates how seriously the rulers were taking the spread of the name Jesus. I know today it's hard to think of masses of Jews believing in Jesus, but every last Christian before they were even called Christian was Jewish. And there were thousands of Jews that looked at their scripture and looked at the evidence for Jesus and said, absolutely, He is the Messiah and He is raised from the dead. This Jesus, though, for the rulers was a conundrum. The rulers thought that they had eliminated Jesus when they went to Pilate and said, This man says he's a king. Let's do away with him. And he got the people crucified, crucified. That's probably how it sounded. It probably was a lot louder. And they yelled it out, crucify, crucify. And they thought, this is good. And when he hung on the cross, do you remember, they hurled insults at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. Jesus is gone. He's over with. He died on a cross like a criminal. Don't worry about him. I mean, in their mind, this was a slam dunk. But now, Jesus just keeps bobbing back up all over the place, and they consider it a hefty enough problem to confront the followers of Jesus head on. Please take a moment to behold how evil men and unbelieving men in power do try to contain the message of the church and the message of the gospel. They really do. They try hard. They harness all of their powers and their resources. They use their influence. They want to shut it down. But as you read forward in the book of Acts, you realize their efforts only serve to strengthen the church and move the church along. It's just like Satan. He tries to stop what the church is doing. He tries to stop what God is doing, and it only serves to further the work of the church. God is so brilliant. God is so resourceful. The gospel can never be contained. It just can't be. What is the gospel? It's the Word of God. Who's God? The omnipotent being. Who can put a cap on the words of a being who is omnipotent? Who would be able to stop His words? God's Word carries God's power behind it. There are various groups who have tried for over 2,000 years to quash the Bible, and yet it keeps spreading. Either it spreads openly, like we're doing it now, or it spreads quietly behind doors, but it crosses borders, it escapes prisons, it runs down the highway, it penetrates into the deepest corridors of institutions, no one can stop it. Like Paul wrote, we mentioned this verse last time in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I'm in jail, but the Word of God is not in prison. Now, who are these men who think that they could suppress the message of Jesus? Next, Luke decides to itemize them to describe those who comprise this ruling body. He mentions three groups, and then he puts forth four names. First group is rulers. These are not civil rulers, but they are religious rulers. They were the senior priests. Back in chapter 3 and verse 17, it refers to them as the ones that were responsible for Jesus' death. The second group is elders. These are the civic leaders, the tribal chiefs, the family heads. They were usually older in age, as the very name indicates. Later in the book of Acts, this term will be used both for older men in Judaism, also those in the position of leadership as elders in the church. Then there's the scribes. Who were these guys? They were the Bible scholars of the day. They actually were mostly Pharisees, even though that's not mentioned here. They are men who were very acquainted with the Bible. They constantly studied day and night the law of Moses. 
Yet often they were blind to what the meaning of that was. You know, Jesus confronted a lot of the Pharisees and the students of the Pharisees when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in these scriptures you have eternal life, but it's these that bear witness of me and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They knew the minutia, but they didn't get the message. Please see how men can be very well educated and versed in the Bible, knowing minutia of Scripture better than any of us here, but miss the whole meaning and message. And so the Sanhedrin was a mixture of Pharisee and Sadducee. Probably the Pharisees, as it's listed here, had more clout. The priests seemed to be much more in power in Jerusalem, and so they had more influence. Now, there's four specific names that are given. And by the way, this also shows that Luke was gathering specific information. He was checking his sources. There's no reason to list out the names of people that were present in a council if he wasn't trying to show and indicate that all of this was well-researched historically. The first name that is given is Annas. He is mentioned as the high priest, and that might be a little bit of a head-scratcher since he only served as high priest from 6 A.D. to 14 A.D. This is somewhere around 30 or 31 A.D., Daryl Bach in his commentary explains it this way. He says that Annas was the patriarch of the family that held high priestly power. And he was that for several decades. And so he's given that title, high priest, here. Today, someone who's been a congressman or been a president still is going to refer to as Mr. President or Mr. Congressman or something like that. They're still given that honorary title even though they no longer have the office. That's what's happening here to Annas, except in Annas's case, he is no little puppet. He's actually the, the guy behind the scenes that's pulling all the strings. He's the guy in real power. He is listed first for that reason. I believe his condemnation before God is going to be greatest. The second is Caiaphas, and guess who Caiaphas is? Is, is Annas' son-in-law. And Caiaphas pretty much did what Annas wanted. He was the current high priest at this time, and he served from uh, roughly 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. It's interesting that his high priesthood corresponds exactly with Pontius Pilate's reign as a Roman procurator and governor, and so that has led many scholars to believe that Caiaphas and Pilate had a very good relationship and got along well. It seems that it was Caiaphas' ossuary, which is a container that holds uh, the bones of someone who's deceased, that was discovered in 1990. There's some debate about it, but there seems to be good evidence uh, that these were his bones that were discovered and some from his family, again, adding additional proof to the historical reliability of these records. The third man that is mentioned here is lesser known, uh, John. In fact, we might not know who he is. This is possibly a man named Jonathan who was also a son of Annas and who replaced Caiaphas as high priest in 37 A.D. The fourth man we don't know, Alexander. Um, we're not quite sure who he is. There's, he's not attested outside of the biblical record. That's not surprising because there's so much information from the ancients that was buried and we don't discover and we shouldn't expect to get every detail in Scripture that is confirmed outside of Scripture. And there were others, notice. He doesn't list them by name, but all those of high priestly descent are there. Wow. This is quite a bunch, guys. This is quite a ruling group. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish nation under the reign of Rome. It comprised 71 members, including the high priests. The term council down in verse 15, if you glance down there, actually is the word Sanhedrin. This was 
We could call it the supreme court of the land. They had jurisdiction over so much, and particularly the temple area. How did they get to be 71 in number? That number seems to be based on Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16, back in Moses' day where Moses had 70 elders and then Moses was the 71st. The actual origin of this court goes back to intertestamental times after the close of the Old Testament when Israel no longer had a king and it was conquered by other states. This came to be a ruling body under the jurisdiction of other and under the reign of other nations like Greece and like Rome. This body in Israel had jurisdiction over all non-capital crimes, but they were even able to advise in capital cases, as we know, because they advised Pilate that Christ was to be put to death. And we really see their influence there. They did more than advise Pilate. They knew how to pull his strings. They knew how to push his buttons. They knew how to corner him so that Pilate, who knew Jesus was innocent and pronounced several times that Jesus was innocent and even washed his hands in front of the people to say, his blood be on you and your children, he was cornered and felt that though he had Rome to back him, these guys were so powerful that led to Jesus' crucifixion. These are powerful people very powerful people. They're cunning people. They knew what they were doing. And so the point here is that the opposition to Christianity is widespread and persistent among the Jewish leadership. All of the priests at this point in time, at least the leading priests, seem to be in agreement against this movement. This is the same evil body that had Jesus put to death. If you want to understand why God destroyed that generation of Jews, so much so that people today have a hard time believing that God even has a future for the nation of Israel, but He does because His Word says so, but why the nation at that time was so greatly rejected, just look at the persistent evil and resistance of this body and you have all the explanation that you need to know why in those years 68, 69, and 70 AD, Israel and Jerusalem were destroyed as a nation and the people were taken off of the land by the Romans and treated so harshly. It goes back to their mass and persistent hatred of the name Jesus of Nazareth. They hate that name. That name challenged everything that they were. That name was declared as king, and they did not want to give up their rulership. And so they lower their eyes on these two fishermen from Galilee, and in their pomp and in their status with their nice robes that they had on, they begin their inquiry. Luke does not present every question that might have been asked of the apostles, but there are two main questions which uh, are accurate of their words. And uh, really, it's one question that has two parts to it. The question is, by what power or in what name have you done this? That's their concern. They don't deny, please notice, that the lame man was healed. They don't deny there was power. They don't deny that a name was used. They want to know what power did this? What name? They're concerned, the teaching, the power, the source. Now, there is actually a biblical reason why the ruling council of the Jews would want to inquire what someone was teaching 
the people of Israel in the temple or even elsewhere. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 in their own law in verses 1 through 5, the Jews were told that if a prophet arises among you and he starts to prophesy and he provides a sign, a miraculous sign, and the sign comes true, but he says, let us go after other gods. You need to know that I have not sent that prophet. There may have been miraculous power that was used, but because they're misleading the people, I did not send that prophet. You do not need to fear that prophet. Actually, take him out and stone him to death. He's a false prophet. And so there is a sense in which the letter of the law is being followed here. That false prophet was not to be feared. They had a right to ask him, what name did you do this by and where is the power from? The lame man was healed, power was used. Give your testimony. How did you do this? Who is empowering you? Who do you speak for? By what name do we see this display of power? Later, notice they call it a noteworthy miracle. What's the name? In Greek, the the word name is onama. And um, it's recognized that the name is providing the power. The name stands for something, and because of that, the name is great, and the name carries power. The name of the person is powerful. There's authority. If someone came to you in the name of a king and said, in the name of King whatever, King Charles, do such and such, you'd know that if you disobey that, you're disobeying the authority and the power of the name. The name carried weight. The name carried power, in this case, authority. In this case, miraculous a power. The name had power. That's true. All we do, by the way, in church is in the name of Jesus, right? It's His name that defines everything that we do, and it's His name we try to lift up when we do that. All of the teaching that we do is in the name of Jesus. All of the action and service is in the name of Jesus and for the benefit and growth of His kingdom, yes? Christianity functions down on earth because of that blessed name, Jesus, Jesus, that blessed name. We preach Jesus, and then sometimes we suffer for preaching Jesus. You should be known as a Jesus person, and when you're known as a Jesus person, you need to be ready to suffer because of that. You identify with a name. You don't bury the name. You don't make the name way off to the side. I believe in God. Which God? The God that Jesus teaches. God is too generic. It's not good enough. You have to be known as a Jesus person, you see. And so they were. It's that name. 1 Peter 4, 4 says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name. We were told. Take the name Jesus, put it on you, put it on your forehead, put it on your Bible, put it on your desk at work. You're going to be hated. You're going to be hated. Evangelism is done in the name of Jesus. We don't go out and just talk about how you can have a personal relationship with God. It's not good enough. We go out and we say, we're explaining the good news of Jesus the Messiah, and we put that forward. We don't hide that. In 3 John, it says, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the unbelieving Gentile. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 21, it says, in Jesus' name, the Gentiles will hope. That's the name. 
In Ephesians 1, it's the name that is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. There never will be a name greater than this name. It's the greatest now. It's going to be the greatest then. Why would we be embarrassed of that name? Why would we be ashamed of that name in any way? That name has power. Unbelievers evidently can harness that power and use it in a miraculous way. It has so much power. You say, what do you mean? Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Jesus speaking, He said, Many will say to me on that day, that judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons? That takes power. And in Your name perform many miracles. And it's assumed that they actually did that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had power. They had no godliness. So these ruling priests want to know the name and the power. By the way, did you know Jesus was confronted with a similar question? Would you like to know how Jesus would handle all of the the dignitaries and the leaders when a lot of them came to him in the context of debate and wanted to catch him in his words? It records it in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. You can turn there. I'm going to read it. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. It says there, on one of the days while Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, ah, there they are again, and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Same entourage. Verse 2 of Luke 20, and they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority, power, you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? (laughs) They want to know. What are you doing this by? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. See, Jesus had his own authority. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? And if we say from men, all the men will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You don't have a right to know. That's how Jesus handled him. By the way, if your view of Jesus, of Nazareth, is some weak, wimpy guy, you better reread the Gospels. This guy was tough. That's the true historical Jesus. But not us. We're weak. We're foolish. We wobble in our legs. We get worried. I do too. What would we do having such an august body standing before us, renowned for their ability to punish, and no one there to tell us what to say? standing all alone, no lawyer, the threat of punishment be upon us. These are the same guys that put Jesus to death. They know that. We might buckle at the knees, right? We might compromise the message. We might go back to the church and say, guys, we got to tone it down a little bit. We can keep believing in Jesus. We just got to kind of tone it down a little bit. Peter and John did not know this was coming on that day. Just because they were apostles and prophets doesn't mean God reveals everything in the future. Most things they didn't know. They didn't know what was going to happen to them that day. They're just going along in life. They're going up to the time of prayer, going to the temple, doing what they ought to do. There's a lame man. They heal him in the power of Jesus. A crowd gathers. They preach to them the word of God. Now they're arrested. Then they're in jail. Now they're brought before this body. They're surrounded by this council the greatest and most renowned council in their entire country. It'd be like us standing before the Supreme Court 
with the threat of punishment and power all invested in one group with no lawyers, cameras on us. Many of us would fold under this kind of weight to our own shame. Listen, if you want to be bold for Jesus Christ, you can't just read the Bible and say, yeah, that's good. Let's be bold. Look at those guys. I want to be like that. If you want to be bold, you have to be holy. And if you want to be holy, you have to dedicate your life to Christ and live for Christ. Do you understand that? If you want to be holy, you have to deny yourself. You have to be denying yourself now. You won't be holy if you don't deny yourself now, and you won't be bold if you're not holy. It starts now with who you are, how you live day by day. Those little things that come along the way, not a great counsel, but just some one guy may just wonder and look at you strange for the way you're holding your Bible or something like that. How do you handle that? Who do you live for? What standards do you have in your workplace? What do you go along with that you shouldn't? What jokes do you laugh at? Do you set yourself apart for God? Are you really bought with a price by Jesus Christ? Do you live for Him? Do you glorify God in your own body as it says in 1 Corinthians 6? They did, and they were bold. Notice next in the interrogation that we see the response the apostles gave in verse 8. And here again, Peter is leading, and he's the spokesperson. And it says in verse 8, look at it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And what he, what he goes on to give is, is a three-part response. But before we get even into that response, I want you to see that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the book of Acts, you'll see that Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you'll read a little later, and it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit again, and you'll read a little later, and it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit again, and each time he speaks. And that's because that kind of filling of the Holy Spirit with the Greek term pimplami, that that kind of filling was a periodic filling that the Holy Spirit would give apostles and prophets so they could give forth a prophetic utterance. They could speak forth the Word of God. All believers are commanded to be full of the Spirit, but in a different sense, not in that sense. We're not all prophets and apostles. We're not writing the Bible. We're not giving new revelation. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, he uses a different Greek term, plerao, and it says all of us are to be being full of the Holy Spirit, and that refers to a continuous fullness that doesn't come and go, but is one that saturates our lives. It's really akin to what we would call Christ-likeness because the Holy Spirit is really the Spirit of Christ, right? So when we're full of the Spirit of Christ, we display the Christ-like character that is needed. When we're full of joy and we're full of peace and we're full of love and self-control, and faithfulness, and faithfulness to our word, and godliness, that is what it means to be full of the Spirit, and we're always to be yielded to Christ's Spirit in our life. But Peter was full of the Spirit probably in both senses, and he's being empowered to speak here. And I've just mentioned that because we cannot handle persecution in our own power. When we yield to God, then he fills us. He fills us with understanding, and he fills us with power, and then we can handle persecution. Sometimes in my Christian life, I've kind of thought ahead and I get worried. I'm like, what happens if this happens? And what happens if that happens? Have you ever done that? And you hear something that happened to somebody else and you're gulp and you're like, I don't think I can handle that. And I just want to give you some encouraging news about that. You don't have to handle their trials. I mean, you could bear one of those burdens, but you don't really have to handle their trials. You read about somebody in church history, you're not that person. You have to handle your trials, and God will give you the grace to handle your trials when they come, and so you don't need to be worried. So Peter's response goes like this in three parts. First is his address at verse 8. He says, rulers and elders of the people. Now, that is a polite address. Do you see that? 
That is respectful. He didn't say, you bunch of dimwits. He gives them the title that they have earned. In fact, if you really think about it, Peter and John have been respectful throughout this entire process. They did not try to resist arrest. They did not revile the officials who arrested them. They did not yell words at the temple cops. This is what we are taught as Christians, right? Not to make fun of dignitaries. We're not to do that. Officers and dignitaries, we're not to do that. The late-night comedians do that to make a living. We are not to do that. We are not to promote that. Whether the person is good or whether the person is bad is irrelevant. Whether you agree with their politics or disagree with their politics is irrelevant. Romans 13, 7 says, render honor to whom honor is due. And that refers not to their character but to their position. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says when you're giving, uh, giving evangelism and you're giving your testimony and you're giving an account of the hope that is in you, your Christian hope, do it with gentleness and reverence. But what if the person I'm talking to is a total idiot? You give it with gentleness and reverence to the best of your ability. To the best of your ability. Some people, it seems almost impossible to speak something respectful of them. I get it. But we do it to the best of our ability. And so Peter and John do that here. The second part of Peter's speech is his clarification. And this has a little bit of humor to it, I think. Why were they arrested? (laughs) Why were they even being addressed here? Verse 9, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, do you see the subtle suggestion there? Why on earth are we even being summoned and called here to give an account for what? That we healed somebody? Usually somebody in our position who had healed someone would be rewarded. We'd be being thanked. You'd be offering us some things. Why are we being called in here to be questioned like this? But then he goes on and he gets to the part that he really wants to get to. And you always see this with the apostles, and that is they wanted to proclaim Christ. Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Notice the man was present. He's a witness. Peter says to them, let it be known. Let it be known. Please learn from his boldness here. Paul said, we've not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of what? Power and love and discipline, 2 Timothy 1, 7. The apostles boldly declared the gospel, and they said, there's no longer any excuses for any of you leaders. Let it be known is not just a way of starting something. It was a way of saying, all of you rulers and all of the people you represent behind you, the entire nation, this is the time now where all of the nation and all of you need to know something. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the name that God is working through now. The time of ignorance is over. You can be forgiven for the fact that you did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. There's forgiveness for that. You crucified him, and God is still willing to forgive you. You were ignorant what you did. Remember, Peter preached before that you killed him in your ignorance. You didn't really know, but no longer any more ignorance. Now you know. Let it be known. This is who it is, Jesus. In fact, 
Paul makes the same statement to the Greek philosophers, not the Jews, but to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He said, God is now, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. There was a time, there were times that passed through where the Gentiles were in ignorance. No longer are they allowed ignorance. Now, God is declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent. This is the time of knowledge, not the time of ignorance. They need to know. And so Peter boldly and unapologetically declares the name by which the power to heal the lame man was given, and that name, he belabors it. He doesn't just say Jesus. He says, Jesus, the Christ, the Nazarene. No doubt at all about who he is. His hometown is mentioned. Jesus is the name that healed him. Jesus is the name. Sometimes people wonder, could Jesus have been called another name? I mean, would it have been okay if Mary and Joseph had given him another name? And the answer is no. This was always to be his name. This was the name given directly from heaven. Most parents get to name their own kids, right? Not Joseph and Mary. Angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph and said he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What does the name Jesus mean? mean? It means Savior. It's a shortened form of Yeshua, Joshua, and it means Jehovah saves. That's his name. That's the name. And not content to declare merely his name, Peter brought home conviction of sin to them. You cannot, you cannot just in some way believe in Jesus. You need to recognize that you're under sin. He looked at them. I wonder if he pointed at them. And this was not impolite. This is the kind of offense that the gospel is supposed to give. He looked at them and said, this Jesus you crucified. Do you understand when he said that, he was potentially putting his own life on the line. That could be a capital offense as far as they were concerned. You crucified. You crucified this one who has this power. You did it. Did he have righteous indignation there? I think he did. Did he also have patience and an offer of hope for this counsel? I think he also had that. Because then he says, but God raised him from the dead. They should have been excited. We made a huge mistake, but God covered for our mistake. He raised Jesus from the dead. You tried to do away with him, but God was on his side. God raised him from the dead. You killed him. God raised him. And now, behold, the power of Jesus at work. Verse 11, he, Jesus, is the chief cornerstone. He's the stone which was rejected. And he has to interpret that psalm. That's an that's a, a allusion to Psalm 118, verse 22. And he, he interprets it for him. He says, he's rejected by the builders. That's you. You were the builders. You rulers of Israel, you're the builders. You took that stone, you looked at it, and you said, we can't build anything with this, and you hurled it away. But God went out in the field, and he found that stone, and he said, this is a precious stone, and he put it right back as the cornerstone and said, I'm going to build the church and build the kingdom of God from that stone. He became the chief cornerstone. The rulers ex unetheo, the rulers rejected and despised Christ, but God took him and thought of him as precious and built everything around Jesus Christ. They threw him away as worthless, but God took him and used him. Boy, what boldness Peter had here. Do you remember this is the same man that just, what, a year and a half earlier, maybe two years earlier, he was scared because of a servant girl. Remember that? Now he stands in front of all these people 
Dr. John MacArthur, MacArthur summarizes his, his boldness and his testimony here. He writes, In the very citadel of the Sanhedrin's power, Peter put his judges on trial by proclaiming the truth about the living Christ to those responsible for his execution. By pointing out that they executed Jesus, but God raised him up, Peter showed them to be the enemies of God. It's one thing to stand in front of a bunch of rulers and preach Jesus. It's an entirely another thing to stand in front of the ones that killed Jesus and tell them they killed Jesus and be at the mercy of that council. That's real boldness. This is amazing boldness. And then comes verse 12, which I think is the punctuation mark. And please, if you haven't been listening up to this point in time, listen to verse 12, because this is the main point he's making. Verse 12, and Peter's still speaking here. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here is a good Protestant. He's preaching solus Christus. Salvation only in the name of Jesus Christ. Not Mary, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith. No other name. One name. Saves. One name. One name only. Jesus is the Savior. You ignore Jesus, you throw away eternal salvation. You try to add someone to Jesus, you don't really believe in Jesus, you throw away eternal salvation. If you don't think Jesus alone can save you and that only Jesus can save you, you're not saved. This is so clear. Salvation is exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, understand that when Peter was saying this, he was holding out hope for these people. He was offering these Jewish leaders the opportunity. You might say this was their moment in the sun where they could rise up and realize that they had had killed their Messiah and got down on their knees and wept and gathered together the families and said, now we understand the prophecies. Now we see it was all written for us. Now we see that it was evil. We repent. Is there any hope for us? Yes, Israel, God will never throw you away. Here is your opportunity. If they would have repented in mass, that's exactly what would have happened. But they had to believe it was only Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to God, you go through Jesus, period. He's the door, right? If anyone enters through me, Jesus said, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. All that came before me are thieves and robbers. Exclusive. He told the Jews, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, you'll die in your sin." People die in their sins all the time. What does it mean to die in sins? It means you die having to pay for your sin because Christ will not cover them. Now, the salvation he means here in verse 12 is spiritual salvation. There's salvation, spiritual salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins and nobody else. It comes from the verb sozo, a very common verb in the New Testament. Actually, in this passage, it also is referring to the healing of the layman, the, the healing of the layman, the restoration of him, the saving of his body, so to say. Bringing him to full health is the physical illustration of what can happen to the nation. They can be healed of their being crippled, so to say, and be saved spiritually. 
But Peter is saying more, and I don't want you to miss this. Peter is saying more than Jesus is the only way to get saved. He's saying Jesus is the only way that we must be saved by. He actually uses a, a, a term there that refers to a, a divine necessity. It says more than Jesus says. It says God is requiring salvation to be through Jesus. Do you see that? Men may come up with their own saviors, their own little work systems of religion. Do this, do that, and you'll be okay in the end. God won't judge you. And they try to be saved by following that pathway. And they come up with their own religions. They may sprinkle a little Jesus and a little Bible in there, but it's not really from the Bible. It actually is a deceptive way of salvation. It doesn't lead to salvation at all. And people have done that down through human history. But Jesus, Peter says, is a divine must. He's a divine must. God demands people believe in His Son. God is not offering Jesus as an option to the world. God is commanding the world to believe in Jesus Christ. God refuses to deliver any soul apart from the name of Jesus Christ. The idea that you can follow another name and and think that God counts your sincerely following another name is the same thing as following Jesus is not only ridiculous and illogical, but it is rebellious towards God himself. God said, this is my son, believe in him or else. Why should you believe in Jesus to get saved from your sins? Yes, but more than that, because God commands you to believe. 1 John 3, 23, this is God's commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't ever go out there and share Jesus. You offer Jesus that's true. You offer them life, but you tell them the consequences if they reject Him. There is salvation in nobody else. The writer of Hebrews says, how will we escape God's fierce salvation if we neglect so great a salvation? God's fierce judgment, excuse me, if we neglect so great a salvation. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's work. Nothing gets built that is not built on Jesus. People today, they want to talk about God and not Jesus. God will not allow himself to be talked about except through Jesus. Coexist is a slogan that God rejects. He rejects it. We preach an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. We don't do it because we like to be controversial. We do it because we don't want to deceive people. Because when they die, they will find out their salvation and nobody else. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Did you find it? Did you find the gate and the way? Have you come to Christ and said, I give my life up. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. Jesus said, if you give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. 
Have you given up your life? Have you said no to you and yes to Christ? If you haven't, whatever faith you think you have is not a saving faith. The only faith that saves is the faith that says, death to me and life to Christ. Let Christ be born in me. My life is unacceptable. When you get to that point where you're humble enough to accept that, that you are unacceptable in the sight of God, that you will be rejected by God, then you're ready to be born again. Then you're ready to be saved. Then you're ready to become a Christian indeed. And so Peter accepted his place in persecution. He accepted it. He didn't try to hide from it. Let it be what it is. God will be glorified. Christ will be preached. Do you understand now that if Peter and John had not been arrested in the temple that day, we would not have this absolutely fabulous and loyal testimony that gives glory to Jesus Christ? Do you see that? Why did God allow these two men to be arrested right after they did a good deed and brought in there so you and I would have a testimony of what it means to actually be a Christian? And it would give glory to Christ in every circumstance. And he may do that for you. He may put you on the spot, obviously in a lesser way. Well, who knows? Some terrorist gets to you, puts a gun to head and says you're a Christian. Turn and look at him and say, I am so most gratefully a Christian. And if I die now, I want my last words to be, I praise my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for for saving my wretched soul, for dying on the cross for me and being raised from the dead. And by the way, you could be saved by him also. Pray that your faith is like that. That's essentially what these men were doing. And I love this beautiful picture of two humble men who loved Jesus Christ being attacked by a demon-influenced group of powerful men and yet having more power and more character and more joy in the midst of all of that than any of them and all of them could muster. It's amazing what God does in the midst of our weaknesses, how he demonstrates his power. Amen? Blessed be Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Help us to glorify your name as a church. Help us to be humble and never try to give a bold testimony in our own strength. May we fall flat on our faces when we do that. Teach us every day to wake up and come to you and acknowledge our weakness and dare not rush into the the day and into the world without being ready to bear a testimony for you that in our weakness you might shine your glory and that our lives might be there to honor you. Father, forgive us our sins when we have denied knowing you and maybe even in subtle ways and strengthen the knees of your people by making them full of your spirit. Thank you for speaking to us from this text today. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.